Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry and this week for the little news roundup, I'm joined by Kaz. So Kaz, it's just been World Champs Weekend. You are from the United States of America, which is quite a big bicycle market, I hear. Mountain biking is arguably, you know, in terms of the the take-up, that's, that's one of the most valuable markets. So we had World Champs at the weekend. As a member of this important sector of mountain biking, how was it as an American to watch World Champs? It turns out it's kind of difficult to watch World Champs because I thought I was being a good person this year and I subscribed to GCN+. Plus. I paid money and I have a subscription so I could watch the World Cups. But then, of course, World Champs, the viewing rights get sold to everyone else. So I couldn't watch on GCN+, yes. Plus technically. But then I figured out how to use a VPN because I'm a smart little guy. And I used a VPN and then I watched it via setting my location to the UK because if you were in the UK and you had GCN+, Plus, you could watch it. So I figured it out. I watched the World Champs. Yeah, I mean, cherry picking the best attributes of being British there. You didn't get the bad teeth. It's normally a package deal. You get yeah, world yeah. champs, but you also <laughs> get gravestones. Um, now, to be fair to to Discovery, world champs has always been tricky. Yeah, it's not it's not a new issue. I think that the way they do the subscription model maybe isn't helping because the the you can't just get a season pass where you get all the races. You pay for six months, say subscription. And there's only racing in three of those months. <laughs> so yeah. it's a bit it's a bit difficult. The World Champs race was very good. Um, did you manage to watch it? I did, yeah. So I did watch the race. And it, yeah, it was a good race. It's kind of like the classic Fort William, rainy, wet, you know. And I was glad for the men that it rained for, throughout the whole race. It wasn't one of those World Champs where someone wins maybe because the course changed halfway through. It seemed pretty yeah. fair throughout. Like everybody was stoked on spoiler alert if you haven't watched it charlie hatton won if you haven't watched by now it's been a while but yeah you haven't got um, yeah it'll come out on friday they haven't got (laughs) exactly there's no sympathy here yeah no um (laughs) but yeah it was sweet to see him win and also atherton bikes won too kind of a cool little story of you know like i just liked how the how the race played out um but yeah coverage itself was yeah there's some weird drone footage did you notice how the drone drone yeah Yeah. it makes it like it's a downhill race but it looked like they're riding a road because from a distance fort william looks really smooth but then if you go up close it's obviously not smooth like you've been there you know it's just these huge boulders but when you make a drone it just smooths it out so i thought it was kind of strange but yeah i mean in the women's race valley hole one which was super well you know she's done it again it feels like in the early part of her career she was maybe plagued by some nerves issues and they're they're very much gone now um As a North American, I think us Brits, we get sentimental about Fort William as a track, as a place, what it means to the mountain bike culture of the UK. What is your perception of the track? Is it, because for me, when I, I think of the best World Cup tracks, I think Val de Sol, that's, that's my one, the old Andorra maybe, before it turned into like a big moto track. What's your perception as a North American of the Fort William World Cup track? Yeah, I think I'm a spoiled North American in that I've been to Fort William just once, but I was there in like 2012. I was there on Rachel and G both won their respective races. So that was pretty cool. And just that gave me a greater appreciation for Fort William. Cause my mind, I knew it was a, even at that point, you know, I had a lot of heritage and been in the series for a while, but from a distance. And when you look at the coverage, you can't always tell how rough and long and, and kind of different that track is. So being there in person, I was like, Oh yeah, this is a pretty neat track. And just the way that the Finnish corral is just a kind of amphitheater. Like it's a, it's kind of a special race in that regard. You can just so many, so many cool events have happened there. So, but as far as the track goes, it's not the steepest. It's not the most difficult. It's just kind of long and rough is more of what it is. So yeah, I don't think it, if I was a racer, I don't know what I'd feel if that'd be my favorite track. Like it's not yeah. fun. Isn't really the word that comes to mind for Fort William. It looks more fun with the adjustments they've made. It looks a bit smoother perhaps. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't know some actual 
yeah, not, it does look a bit better. Working, it's a strange one. I think when I mean, you've been there, it's, it is kind of out the way. The local town doesn't have that much accommodation. I've talked about this before. It, it's, it's a strange place to work. Yeah. Um, but all in all, I think, I think a really good world champs. I really, really hope it's hard for us here because obviously we work for Pink Bike and there's sort of like the other, the other side of, of discovery and all this, but I really hope they get it right. I think, um, I think Neil Donahue, I don't know if he was in your coverage, he but was, I think yeah. he actually did a really great job. I really, yeah. he was measured. He was calm. And yeah, I, I really like that. That's kind of the level I'm at. So I thought, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, outside of world champs, as if anything exists, you reviewed the new propane. And how do you say this? Is it the Thai or the Thai? Thai. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know what Thai the, is, though. But, I don't yeah. know what Thai <laughs> is either. You wrote the propane Thai ECF. So this enduro bike seems to have lots of adjustment. There was one word or phrase coming up in the comments a lot, and that was cable tourism, which is yes. fantastic. It's fantastic, eh? It is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, this one has the cable tourism feature where the your, your through headset through headset cable routing. We've kind of bashed it a bunch for you know deserved. It's de- deserving of all the bashing we're giving it. But um, yeah, so for this one, there are some inconveniences that arise from that. Like when it showed up. It had a 35 millimeter stem and they, they were nice enough to include a 50 mil stem. So I could kind of try, but, uh, being extra picky, I wanted a 40 mil stem six pack. Mm. The, the stem company doesn't make a 40 mil stem. So I wanted to switch it. So I had to find a different headset, top cap, different spacers. Uh, There's just like a whole, one of those things where you're just like, I just want to go ride. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, wait until you try the 42, 42 mil stem cows. That's going to knock your socks be the, off. Well, Bergtech makes one. So yeah, I think I've got one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one at 42 mil is just perfect. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. I mean, I'm someone, I know we, we've spoken about this before. I'm not averse to internal cables, but I think this through the headset is a nonsense. I think that architecturally, I think the propane have made actually quite a good job in terms of sealing of this and the way it all goes together. Mm-hmm. You know, they've really given it a good go, but we yeah there needs to be some sort of yeah i think I hopefully know. the blowback this year is going to make some companies change ish we'll see and, you know, sometimes the wheels are in motion so it might take us a little bit before it goes away but i mean the good news for this bike it's available in aluminum and the aluminum one has cable ports where they belong um just next yeah. to the head tube so you can you can run it normally that way so i got yeah. the common soul sx that we've got in for our field test actually the meter sx really cool mm-hmm. bike um that also comes with through the route through the headset or or otherwise yeah and maybe that's the way to do it. I guess. I don't know. I don't necessarily think it looks that much better. It's interesting to see the bike that you had, I believe, came with code RSCs. The mm-hmm. old style that doesn't yeah. have the weird lines, which I've heard they yeah. I heard a rumor they might be changing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I like the prototypes that we've seen of the new downhill brakes. Looks like it's like the angle's a little bit different. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll see how the the exit goes. But But anyway, all in all, quite a good bike. It yeah. seemed like it reviewed quite well. Yeah, like it's a good. I mean, it's, I think I called it energetically neutral was the term I came up with because it's <laughs> it's like almost it's it's hard. This one is a turkey one for me to review because it's like I know you like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Energetically <laughs> yeah. neutral. Like, it was almost boring, but it's okay if a bike is a little bit boring. It just does what it's supposed to. You know, it's not. It didn't blow me away with its speed or its abilities, but it was also just really easy to get along with. Like the geometry is nice and modern. Um, it's not crazy slack. It's not crazy steep. It's just everything's kind of like that middle for. So I think for some people, it could be one of those kind of like Goldilocks bikes. I did have some, it's a little bit rougher, like they give it a little bit more feedback and rough stuff than I wanted. Um, it could be due to that suspension curve. It's got a lot of anti-squat 
and the anti-squat increases as it goes through its travel for, oh, yeah. until about halfway through the travel. So I think like small bump sensitivity wasn't a strong suit, but definitely planted and like you could kind of air into rock gardens and just stomp stuff and keep going. So yeah, overall I had a good time on it, rode it a lot of places and it didn't hold me back. Okay, cool. Well, if you want to check out the bike with its cable routing and all its, all its glory, be sure to head to the pink bike homepage. Now this week, we've actually got a conversation that's kind of quite well-timed with Elliot Jackson coming up. It was Elliot Alicia, who sadly can't be with us today, and I caught up in Worcester. We do talk a bit about various aspects of coverage, but also we focus on Elliot's racing career, bikes, all the business, and I really hope you enjoy it. My name is Henry, and I'm joined by regular co-host, although she hates that title, <laughs> regular co-host, we're sharing it nowadays, Alicia, and Mr. Elliot Jackson, mountain bike racer, coder, presenter, <laughs> um, organ- well, how, how would you describe your role within um grow you yeah. foundation yeah runner philanthropist Co- man of founder creator I, I, I feel like it's uh, one of those things where if i'm in any sort of younger environment i'm like oh i'm a co-founder and then if i have to like we're applying for an, a grant or something i'm like oh, i'm executive chairman executive <laughs> chairman holy shit that sounds like a good yeah, right. that like a good position <laughs> um is there anything i missed yeah he already sounds like quite the guy yeah. i i I kind of like segment my life into like three buckets, right. which is me as an ambassador, which is like, you know, um, Santa Cruz, Thule, Hydroflask, Fox and stuff like that. Riding. In there. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and most of that stuff is just like bike launch videos, you know, typical kind of ambassador stuff. I kind of think of myself as more communicator brand kind of guy. Yeah. And then second bucket is the presenting stuff. So that's all the Red Bull, Red Bull stuff and crank work stuff. So commentating downhill. Um, we're Red Bull and we're doing a uh, studio show now, which is cool. That whole thing. And then the third bucket is is grow. So that's like me. Yeah, me and my mom mostly just like making stuff happen. <laughs> yeah. Things have happened. I just want to add in, it sounds like you have an extremely healthy relationship with being a media personality. And that's more a, a comment, but, um, and who knows how accurate it even is, but it's just cool to hear. Yeah, 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 totally. I was just, I was just having this conversation the other night where I love like the communication stuff, like mm-hmm. trying to articulate something really well. I think that's why I like being the downhill, like the expert role. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a big fan of like being famous. <laughs> like, yes. I don't. And with all of even my ambassadorships, I kind of mm-hmm. have talked to all my sponsors about like not really a big fan of like social media. I think it's amazing. Like it's so many opportunities. But for me, that's mm-hmm. not really my thing. So um, if you do follow Elliot, quickly unsubscribe. Yeah, <laughs> please, please. <laughs> no, I'm just um, kidding. <laughs> we were just talking about this earlier on though. And it feels like to... Not a, it's weird. I think there's so many people in the bike industry that have so many facets to their, mm-hmm. we're talking about it. Like I've come from being just a mechanic, mm-hmm. you know, which isn't much in the media. Um, and then presenting stuff and then writ- a bit of testing stuff. Alicia, you're kind of racer, tester, an actual journalist, not just kind of playing dress <laughs> right. up like I am. <laughs> yeah. And you wear a lot of hats too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do. I think that 
the bike world is much more interesting and complex than people think about it. Like we just did a podcast with Brett Reader and we talked about like him starting his own company and being an, pretty much an architect, like designing his own house. And I think as soon as you start to dig into people a little bit, you find those things where you're like, oh, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But kind of going back to like what it takes to be a professional rider, athlete or whatever, you really have to be pretty niche. One thing that kind of strikes me about you is I guess that you figured out exactly what it is that you are pursuing and then you've decided to do those things really well, like with growth cycling and with being kind of an ambassador and all these things. It seems like, yeah, the things that you're pursuing in the bike world seem to line up pretty well with what I know about who you are and your goals. And that's pretty cool to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I try really hard. Like, I'm glad that it comes across that way externally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the things I've thought about a lot in that way, like when kids ask me, like, how do you get sponsored? Mm-hmm. And I always have these two things, which is like, what are you the best in the world at? Or what can you mm-hmm. do that nobody else in the world can do? And then from a, like a partnership standpoint, like why is this partner the only person in the world that you should partner with to then like elevate that thing that you're really good at. Mm. Um, and so I think that to me, especially like after racing, it was kind of like, what do I want to do? <laughs> like, what is that? Yeah. Thing? But it's weird. I think, and you'd, you'd have the experience that, that I don't in this regard, but as a racer, you get validated and you go through a huge amount of risk to pursue something really specific. Mm-hmm. And then you retire so young, you actually retired kind of twice. Yeah. Can you talk us through that first, the first time you stepped away from downhill? And yeah, what was yeah, going totally. So like, what was that? 2012, I had raced professionally two years on Yeti and then I had what they thought was asthma. So I like went to every single specialist mm-hmm. ever. And every time I would do a race run, like get my heart rate up, I would just start coughing. And so I would get sick. It was a nightmare, like throw up after. And so they thought it was exercise induced asthma. And it was just a nightmare because I knew at the top of the track, like the harder I went, the more sick I would be. And I was just like, I can't do this. This sucks. Like this is making it not fun. I love riding and stuff like that. And so I was like, I'm retired. I thought I was done. Like kind of felt like a forced retirement almost. Um, so I took a year off, like started a music studio, did that in 2013. And then Bernard Kerr had in 2013 had started that pivot. He was the first year that he had another rider, uh, Austin Warren on the pivot team. It's like, you should ride, you should ride. I was like, no, 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 no. So then in 2014, he convinced me to come back and I was like, okay, I'll come back. But you know, I can't really race, but I love going to the world cups and things like that. I'll do some videos, ended up going to a ear, nose and throat doctor. And, um, they said it was vocal cord dysfunction. So Mm. acid, any sort of acid irritates your vocal cords. They start to spasm. No way. Yeah. And so after that, I realized like it's everything. So the way you sleep, right? Like if you sleep kind of slightly up at an angle, your stomach acid stays down. If you're anxious before a race, right? Like that's acidic. If you're, you know, not as fit or whether, whether you're fit or not, like building up lactic acid, like that does something. So changed my diet, like really started to train hard and like all of that stuff. And, and that was kind of how I came back like the first time. And when, when you first got into World Cup racing, I think you told me once before, you had kind of a crazy World Cup. I think it was Val de Sol. Can you 
Yeah. Can you just explain how the week weekend <laughs> shook out, and well, especially the role that your family played in in sort of getting you there? Totally, it's like crazy. I can. Uh, I'll try to tell the quick the quick story. Like, um, grew up racing motocross and stopped doing that. Like, we were super serious. Like, were was on Kawasaki with Villapoto, and I won some championships my last year. Stopped doing that. Found downhill randomly, just from a friend. Came up to Whistler. And I love downhill and he was showing me some world cup videos. I was like, I want to do that. So I got my first downhill bike when I was maybe 18. And then all I wanted to do was race the world cups. And so I read the rule book and I just took me and my mom. I was like, okay, so I need this like pro license. And to get my pro license, I have to do these two cat one races. And so this is all in the course of a year in 2010, we went to sea otter. I won sea otter and cat one. Um, went to some other random race and won that got my pro license. And then I was like, okay, I need these 20 UCI points. And I started, uh, went to this, like think a pro GRT over in New York crashed there. And then I went to national champs and I was like, cool. All I need to do is get a top 20. I get my points qualified fifth. And that was, I think kind of people were like, who is this guy? Like, you know, I don't never heard of him. I remember mm-hmm. Mitch always laughing at me cause I went and bought the new Kashima uh fox forks when they first came out and he was like man i'm a fox rider and i can't even get these i was like i just went into the store and bought them (laughs) (laughs) and so um yeah like qualified fifth at national champs and then crashed in the finals and so i was super disappointed it was just me and my dad there and uh but i had read the rule book so i was like i know that they can put you on the national team if you're if you're good enough and you can go and race a world Cup. i like how this keeps coming back to reading the rule book yeah like, no, what, <laughs> it's funny you know you i love this also just hearing your background because i think i've known like the minimal amounts about your background but this is like very cool to hear. yeah but it's funny you're saying about you know setting yourself up to complete a specific task mm-hmm Reading the fucking rules helps. <laughs> you know? I was, I was obsessed. Like I would, I, love that. I would, I would like every race I did, I was like on roots and rain. I was looking at whoever and I was like, he did. I was three seconds behind him and I know he went to a world cup. So I think I'm okay. How and, mentally healthy did this feel for you? It was great. Like oh, I, cool. I think just coming, I think coming from motocross, yeah. um, I, it was something that I missed because I took, mm-hmm. you know, stopped motocross when I was 15 and this was when I was 19, I guess. That's um, so cool that what it took to be good was also really in line with what worked for you. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. And so, um, yeah, like went and talked to the commissaire at national champs and it was the first year that there was going to be a world cup in Wyndham. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. A lot of us people want to go there. We only have a couple spots. And I was like, well, what about Italy? And he's like, well, it's next week. And I had driven to Colorado with my friends and, um, and he was like, yeah, I mean, if you want to go there. And so I was like, yeah, I like flew home, me and my brother and my mom bought tickets and we flew to Italy as my first so time. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's my first time out of the country. <laughs> we rented a car, like all I had. That's so I didn't, cool. Yeah. Like I didn't have any spare parts. Like I had a little bag with like a multi-tool in it or whatever. We didn't have any pits. So we just like would put my bike upside down behind the specialized rig or whatever. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, me and my brother, like we didn't really know anyone. We had seen him on, on videos. I remember we got there and like walked up the track cause why not? I guess that's what <laughs> you're supposed to do. And, um, I was like feeling really good. And I remember one, oh my God. So I remember it rained in practice. There used to be a day in between like practice and, or I guess, no. Okay. So it was the first day of practice and it had rained 
And I was like, okay, like I'm going to go out there. I need to practice Valdisol in the wet and whatever. I did one run and I was like absolutely terrified. And I like was super jet lagged because I didn't know you were supposed to stay up. And, my, and so I went home and I was like, I'm going to go to sleep because I don't know what else to do. And my brother, he was like, well, let me ride the track. I want to ride the track. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, yeah, man, like throwing my gear. Like no one knows who we are or anything like that. And so he went, put on my gear, got my bike and rolled down the track. And he ended up getting a flat. But he was saying that there was a bunch. It was when it was a little bit more open. And he was like, would roll up to the section that was gnarly and like look over and there'd be a dude from like, you know, I don't know like some country, you know, in the Middle East or something like that. And he's like, are you going to roll this? Like, no, nah, man. Like, are you going to roll it or whatever? <laughs> and so uh, we then <laughs> I came down, like got it fixed or whatever. And then qualifying, um, I was like trying to do this gap at the top, ended up breaking my chain guide, chain came off, derailleur went into my spokes. And I remember like thinking during the run, man, you like came all the way to Italy and you are not going to qualify. But I was like, there's not that much pedaling. And so I like rode, rode down, like ended up qualifying like 67th or something like that. <laughs> or like maybe it was like in the 70s and that was when 80 went through. Um, and I remember my brother saying like, oh, I thought you crashed because your bike was making all this noise and ended up going around the pits. And me and my mom would just go to all the teams and be like, hey, do you have an extra rim? you have an extra chain guide and like Brad Benedict and Curtis Keen, like they got me some parts, the CRC team, they gave me some wheels, like, uh, ended up racing and, you know, finished 60 something or whatever, but it was such a cool experience. It's one of those experiences where like ignorance is bliss. Like if a kid mm -hmm. came up to me now and was cat one and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to go and try to qualify for a world cup at the end of the year. You'd be like, uh, bless your heart but maybe <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. one of the so it's it was such a such a cool experience in so many different ways and then also just to s really get engrossed in the mountain bike world and see how much love there was it's mm -hmm. funny at the similar time it's an interesting parallel between you and aaron grin perhaps mm. he was coming on a yeti at similar yeah. time yeah 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 motorbike motocross background yeah um as a fellow american at that time and downhill was a different beast then it wasn't glossy with these fancy magazine shows that you're doing <laughs> yeah. um what was it like not only i suppose probably people looking at you like what the fuck you just started racing downhill and now you're here but then you'd be like well he's getting top tens was it yeah. what, what's that like i think uh, this is one of those those situations where you talk about all of the experience that i'd had coming in and so i had already done a sport at a really high level i knew exactly what it meant to you know what you needed to do to perform, the mindset, the amount of training. I mean, I don't think I actually knew what it, it took to be a, th at that level, but I had the ability to kind of navigate the world and I didn't really need someone to look up to. Like for me and the way that I grew up and like my parents and, you know, the way that we approach motocross was just like, I'm trying to win. So whoever's winning, I want to do that. And yes. I think that that really allowed me to skip over some things yeah. um, that I think a lot of people you would need, right? Like if I came in and I went to a local race and there's no pro there, like how do you even go from there to thinking that you can be at a world cup? But I think I had, whether it was 
you know, kind of uh, unearned confidence, if you will, right? Like coming from this other sport being like, no, I believe that I can be at least race a World Cup. And when you first, so then we kind of progress onto the pivot years. Um, but that was, that was, you know, I think the pivot team is an amazing thing now. We're actually talking about it the other day about sort of how well Burner's done to turn this thing, which to be honest, at times is probably quite a bit of a ragtag bunch, I imagine. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> this super slick operation. But how is it going from, and I know we want to talk about more than downhill, but I just love downhill. Yeah. Um, going from that pivot setup to then going to kind of maybe more corporate world of giant. Yeah. I bet that, that, that was a, a large cultural shift, I would imagine. Very much so. Um, and you say, like, I was talking about downhill, I was a little funny anecdote for myself. I was at Sea Otter last year and somebody came up to me and they were like, oh man, like, I was wondering why Santa Cruz sponsored a commentator. And then I saw you on Bernard Kerr's YouTube channel and you're pretty good at riding bikes. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> I'm glad. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, I think Bernard. <laughs> I just got, you are obviously amazing at riding bikes. Not the best road bike descender, at least for a time. Okay. You know because what? Because I remember one time I'd, I was trying to relearn cable routing, right? Yeah. So I was trying to go right hand brake rear. Yeah. And we were road biking in Queenstown. <laughs> And it was me and you yeah. coming down the Crown Range with this like 200 cars behind us. And they're probably just like, this is their first ever bicycle ride. After that, I'd, I decided like that I needed to do road bike descents because it was going to like help my mindset. Like if mm. I could go wild down a road bike, mm -hmm. like, like a road bike road, then like a downhill would be no problem. Yes. Um, <laughs> But sorry, yeah, I was taking you away from... No, from no, no. So Bernard, I think uh, one of the things that he probably doesn't get enough credit for is like the vision that he had yep. for, he always was planning on being here. And so I think for me, it was, it was a really interesting one because I had some, came back in 2014, kind of chilled out. I was like, you know, every time there was a break, I would rent a moped, go to Paris and do my thing. And then I was like, okay, I think I can actually do this. I was getting healthy. So I put in like a lot of work in like the off season for 14, 15. And that was when I got, I think like second at Crankworks and started, started yeah, doing a little bit better. Hey. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then in 16, I had like a really good year. I got like a couple top 15s, like another podium at Crankworks. And there was this tension for me where I felt like the racing was going really well. And the only thing that I was missing was just some professionalism. Right? Yes. And I say that just because it wasn't, we didn't have the budget. Right. And so like, there would be times where it's like, okay, we don't have that many wheels. So make sure you don't break a bunch of wheels in practice. And at the time I was like, Oh my God, if I didn't have to worry about that, it would be amazing or whatever. And so I ended up getting on giant that next year. And uh, that was like my dream team. Yeah. I knew the team manager really well. Like one of my best friends, Marcelo, was there and stuff. And ever, I, I got some good results, like another like podium at Crankworks. Yeah, yeah, top 10 at Mount St. Anne. Like, you know, like won the first split in qualifying at Fort William. Yeah. Like yeah. had some really good results and stuff. And uh, I just, the, you think about like the maturity of an athlete and I didn't realize how much of the racing I had figured out and how much of the vibe um, mattered. 
And so I had had that on pivot and then like, you know, felt like I was missing the maybe like equipment part or whatever. And then you go to giant and you miss the vibe and you have like the support, you know, you have a, a chef, you have this, you have that. And, um, it was just this big mistake, I think for myself, just because it didn't fit my personality. Mm. And I think at a really high level, that is what matters is mm-hmm. knowing, knowing yourself. And like, I don't, I didn't really know myself well enough to say, ah, I would do much better in this other environment. You know, that's why, I mean, put my hand up, you know, I mean, not, not to give too much of mm-hmm. the behind the scenes sort of thing, but that's why I didn't fit in a pink bike racing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was very like, I'm, I'm someone, I find it really hard. I'm not a very chilled out person. Basically that's fundamentally it. I think that I'm fun, but I don't think I'm not an easy person. And um, Cathro is a wonderfully easy person. Yeah. He's very relaxed. And the way that we had the team was that we were, to be honest, we were both, there was a large overlap in the, the responsibilities. And I'm someone for me, and it's not for these kids, and it wasn't for Cathro, but I'm there like, I want everything to be processed. I want yeah. each mechanic to know how much thread lock we're going to yeah, put on right. each bolt. Mm-hmm. I want to know in which order we check each bolt on the bike. Yeah, I want to know yeah, yeah. what, what prototype we're going to try and do, what we can offer a brand, like everything. Sure. I'm so like, mm-hmm. fuck, which is great in, to be honest, in video land, it works really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the journalism, sorry, you can't see my air quotes, in journalism uh-huh. land, when it's just me doing my own thing, it's okay. Um, and it's something that does, it's something I quite like about myself professionally, but I did not integrate into that at all well because they would, they just come out of school mm-hmm. and I'm there like, I want to be the best fucking thing ever. Well, I think it's it, the... One of the, one of the things that makes being an athlete hard is that you have to understand more than anyone else that sports are not deterministic. Mm -hmm. So if you train from 6am to 6pm doing, don't eat an ounce of sugar, do all this stuff, like have the most structure ever, that doesn't mean that you will win. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I think from the outside people, it's really easy. You hear, you heard it so much with like Josh Bryson, like, oh my God, if he did X, Y, and Z, imagine how much better he would be. And that's just not the way it works. And so I think it, that piece of like, where do you slot in is so important. And it's a, it's like a puzzle behind the scenes that you don't really see. And so, yeah, people can be training, you can be doing really well, but like, if you're not happy, then nothing else really matters. I think that's such a huge piece too, with trying to balance it being not deterministic with the fact that it's kind of a professional hobby and Mm. we don't really know how to make sense of any of that. Like mountain biking starts out as something most of us do just for fun, just as kind of an almost inconsequential thing that's just to like fill our time and make us laugh. And then turning that into a profession adds such a degree of complexity that we just don't even know what to do with it totally and then also incorporating like the amount of uncertainty that's there the fact that we can do everything right and still have a bad race yeah just like we're not prepared to handle that yeah i mean it it's so true and and i think like i for sure want to make it clear that it's not that any of the teams were bad yeah. right it was that like each team especially if you go around like you would know henry like when you go around to different pits there's different culture, different Mm -hmm. conversations, different everything. And so it would be just like riding a completely different bike that you've never seen before or like doing, you know, you have your process, the people you talk about, the warm Mm -hmm. up, like all of that stuff changes as as soon as you are in a different environment. Well, absolutely. I think personality sort of plays into that 
so much more than almost anywhere else too because we're all mountain bikers because we identify ourselves as mountain bikers yeah and so then like the team vibe or whatever you want to call it becomes such a bigger factor when we're doing the thing that is our identity and also it's kind of our job and we have to figure out how to make it work yeah and like make it work with all the other people around us too yeah well yeah i mean i think that the way i described it and something we've spoken about before is that mountain bike teams are a lot like romance and that a lot of people that are in relationships are putting up a real good show but actually mm-hmm. they may, may well want to be single and a lot of people are totally. single i think they're looking for love but actually once totally. they find a relationship that might work they're like actually uh, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. alicia yeah. someone that was making it work as a privateer in the ews were you looking at teams thinking oh if only how was that mm-hmm. for you what was that what was that relationship like i think i didn't get too many steps ahead of myself because it was always just unknown like i was yeah. sort of making it work but it wasn't long-term sustainable really i was like racing and i loved racing and love riding bikes but i just didn't know what was going to happen next Mm -hmm. there are a lot of pieces that don't really work for me like i'm not a big social media user and i think a lot of what goes into being a pro mountain biker was what i was learning as i was doing it in the moment and also figuring out what did and didn't work for me and i actually think my current role in the bike world suits me better now like Mm. i like to write articles and have conversations with people (laughs) and also like ride bikes sometimes yeah um it's cool now that i've figured out how to at least somewhat balance all of it but racing of course it would have been nice to be on a team like having someone make breakfast for me sounds pretty dreamy whereas like i was (laughs) actually just traveling around the world by myself with a bunch of like slightly broken parts (laughs) and pretty much nothing spare and nothing planned and it's kind of amazing in hindsight that i made it work as okay as i did yeah but also i was just learning at the moment without a plan that's that's a funny thing as well because of course elliot you work for red bull mm-hmm. as a, a freelancer i believe sort of like very tied in contract yeah, maybe totally. I mean, we work for pink bike so we're kind of frenemies we yeah, shouldn't that's be true. That's we true. shouldn't we shouldn't be doing this right now <laughs> um what was it like coming on to red bull was it everything you, you know can you and what was rob like to work with because rob seems someone that yeah has a demeanor of someone that is very relaxed but i actually think he's probably quite specific in totally. some things yeah i mean like all of the all of the broadcast stuff i never would have imagined doing like mm. i never thought i would be in the bike industry after i got done racing um and but we like having you around for what it's worth (laughs) i quite like it i feel like i yeah i found like you said alicia like my little niche that i love um but yeah red bull just reached out to me to do this youtube series like that track walks videos and stuff like that um and i got to work with uh like one one skin media um emmanuel and georg and they were super super cool and i really kind of fell in love with that and then ironically, like I, I feel like Crankworks kind of started my career twice where TJ and Boombox um, and Crankworks were like during summer series uh, during COVID, they were like, why don't you do these commentaries with Cam? And so that was my first time like doing commentary. And then in 21, Red Bull was like, do you want to commentate some World Cups? <laughs> and uh, I was like, sure. Like, I, I don't know how to do any of this stuff <laughs> but i'm super down and i remember the first time that i went to lord was it lord no maybe my first one was leger mm-hmm. my first one must have been leger and i remember thinking like ah oh, yeah like all good i can do this no problem i've no people i've walked the track whatever and 
I went in the commentary booth because Rob was like, why don't we go and do a practice run or whatever? He starts and then I was like, hey, uh, there they, he's okay and he's crossed the finish line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it really made me understand how much prep goes into it. And Rob, like you said, I think outwardly you think of him as kind of loose, whatever, but he put so much effort into it and he has been like such an amazing mentor to me yeah um and i think that it's that it's just so much it's a skill right like it's, it's so, so much a skill and you know it was so cool to see the depth of it right like it's like what's the role okay rob's introducing i'll get this you're getting that you'll get the splits you know you're doing this whatever here's my role i'm gonna bring in this information i think especially now like as we've grown I was really proud of us actually with the Crankworks broadcast where I would be kind of saying something and I knew Rob would come in. And so I would kind of like, Your cadence, s- yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like I would nice. kind of like, just like lay back for a second and then pick up like, right. Mm-hmm. As he, as he did it. And that's, so that's a great deal of skill in itself because there was some, I think that Rob is like an amazingly powerful presence, be it in person. I met him once or twice. He's always been super friendly and yeah. fun, but also on camera. And I think that in the commentary booth, Back in the day, in the freecaster days, I think there were some people that didn't realize like, like you can add so much, but if, if Rob's like got, he's like a driving force mm-hmm. and he's going to do it and then it's going to come and then, you know, you've got to have yeah. a relationship with him. There was some stuff where I remember like, it's like Valder sold 2008, that's really famous yeah, Sam Hill yeah. one. And I come, I don't know the commentator's name, but Rob is animated as fuck in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, this guy <laughs> maybe has got so much to add but they didn't have the relationship then and it's sure. a lot of practice. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just amazing. Like, he was telling me how in one of his commentaries, it was kind of earlier on, or maybe it was just like not a super exciting race. And he went and just was super animated, like yelling or whatever. And one of the dudes who was kind of coaching him at the time, he was like, oh, you just regressed like 10 years. And he was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you can't make something exciting when it's not exciting. Oh, and I so like I, that a lot. Actually. Yeah. And I, and I think that we, even if you kind of like watch one of the commentaries at the beginning we'll kind of start to give context right because the downhill runs really quick and so you can start to build context like okay hey this is what i'm watching for here's what we're doing if somebody is down at the split or whatever right like if you're if they're obviously not going to win um you don't want to like just keep going on that right and so we can maybe talk a little bit about this talk a little bit about that and and so it is I think my role, the, the way that I see kind of the expert is like, it's, I'm the director of attention, yes. like where, mm-hmm. where are you watching? And I want your mm-hmm. eyes to follow the things that are, are interesting and give you context so you know how difficult this stuff is. And when you think about your role as now in, in Red Bull, as well as like we said, doing these other things, um, do you think that where we are at the moment with World Cups and now you're doing this bit pivoting to this extra show? Is that sort of showcase it? Do you, do you want to do any like presenter led stuff? Do you want to do any, or is it, are you kind of happy doing the live things? Cause live scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I, I do like live because it's, um, it, there's more stakes. Mm. Like the it pressure. feels like mm-hmm. a race run. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of, yeah, like a performance, right? It's like similar to a race run where it's like, okay, like do it. Don't yeah. mess up kind of thing. And so I think the commentary does feel similar to racing. Um, And I think 
that I also, as an athlete, you develop this really strong muscle of searching for feedback. And so like as an athlete, you get that feedback by your time, right? You come down the track, you're two seconds back. You're like, okay, that's where I love. Like I'm, I'm not as good as X, Y, and Z. And I think that it's really difficult when you're doing anything artistic to find that. Um, and so it's also nice to have that in the commentaries where it's like, it's this one time. Cause I think with the presenting, obviously you do get to try it again. And like, I've grown so much. Um, but I do think that it's a little bit easier to like, kind of get that feedback, kind of get that feeling and, um, yeah, just that same kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, how do you, with, with this sort of very outward facing like you know public facing role with red bull how much are you doing at the moment or what's your sort of next step with the growth foundation do you think is that something that you feel find is easy to integrate into the racing or do you feel sometimes that actually having a more less live or maybe being in do you kind of see what i'm getting at like what's what's the next step for the growth foundation do you think yeah i've I've always wanted to keep that stuff really separate um and like even context i also think we should introduce the growth foundation yeah totally so um yeah growth cycling foundation no is um is really we started it in 2020 and uh it's really about advancing diversity and inclusion in cycling and the way that i think about that is really from an opportunistic standpoint and so like if you thought about myself um when i was growing up like we didn't i am from oklahoma we didn't have dirt jumps we didn't have mountains we didn't have any of that stuff uh and if we would have if i would have known about that right if i from my kind of story right like i got introduced just happenstance that somebody came down to my dirt jumps when i lived in california and introduced me to mountain biking but if there is a like a clearer path there um i think that you would see a lot more people getting excited about it and so i think for me i i think it starts at the bottom i really think about of us as kind of like an infrastructure company um, so our first initiative is building the first pump track in Los Angeles. It's in Inglewood and uh, it's like two miles away from SoFi Stadium where they had the Super Bowl. And so we're there, we're building this pump track and then also putting in some school programs and things like that. I think is really have this like kind of ecosystem vibe because I think you have two levers to pull. It's like access and then community. There's nowhere to ride. You're not going to ride. If there's nobody to ride with, you still aren't going to ride. Uh, and so again, like the community vibe also, you have to have the desire to ride. And so if there's not this kind of culture, it'd be like taking a snowboard to somebody that lives in Arizona Yes, so um, true. because there's mm-hmm. no desire to do that. Why would I do that when I could be anything else in the world? And so I think for me, I don't see myself, I don't see us as you know, kind of activists or advocates, again, kind of like going back to the famous thing, like I would rather just do this work with nobody watching, nobody mm. knowing and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, uh, but now uh, we just finished building the pump track, um, which is super, super cool. Uh, it's Velo Solutions. It's like a 30,000 square foot pump track. It's like over a million dollars. And uh, we have a fence up around it. And like kids have been breaking, breaking into it. There's been like a bunch of viral videos and stuff on TikTok <laughs> and Instagram. And so it's this really cool thing. We, we just need to do the landscaping and then it'll be done. So cool. Um, but I feel like this. Proud. Yeah. Oh my yeah, God. Like, I, I feel like this kind of old man where I'm like, man, like 
get out of here, but like, come on in because <laughs> we, we have to like pay for the fence or whatever, you know? Uh, but it is, it's like super incredible to see that kind of that, that thesis, thesis played out. Mm-hmm. And, and when you were all those years ago, when you turned up to Val de Sol, were you surprised at just how white and European dominated the sport was? Or what, you know, did you, what, what were your feelings about that? And did you ever have any thing where you thought, I don't know, how, how do we, how do we, how do you feel that we improve that? Because it's a really, not just in terms of ethnicity, but in terms of it's so European dominated. Yeah. I think it's been getting better with Canada and North America in recent years, but you speak to a, a downhill racer from South America and it's non-fucking impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's so, the, the, the exchange rate is so hard. Yeah. The flights are so hard. And then we don't even go there. Yeah. You know, like the people mm-hmm. that could afford to get there potentially For sure. can't even get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really truly think of it from an opportunistic standpoint. Mm. Um, no one from my neighborhood growing up knows what downhill is. Um, and so you think about all of the moments where people drop off and you think about all of the moments where other people might discover it. So a parent introducing their kid to it, um, seeing your friend ride at school, seeing a video, seeing all of these things. Um, and I think you have a cultural split. I think that there's like a lot of kind of culture. And I, I think a lot of stuff, people talk about the cost of it, but the example I like to give is uh, sneakers. And so you have tons and tons of people buying two, three, four thousand dollar sneakers. And the biggest population that's doing that is black people. And so it's not that people can't afford it. It is what do I want to spend my money yeah. on? What is culturally relevant? There's like a picture of Pharrell Williams in a studio and he has a little hardtail. It's like two hundred dollars in there. I don't know what he's doing with it, but it's like set up on a trainer. Mm. And so here's a guy that's a hundred millionaire or whatever. Yeah. And he doesn't think that it's interesting or cool to have a $10,000 bike in there. So he could afford it if he wanted to, but it's just not interesting. Mm. It's not culturally relevant. So I think, um, to me, that's why I say it's like infrastructurally, um, and providing opportunities kind of like just talking to has and Harry Beveridge Smith and, and Robin Gooms. And they were kind of saying the same thing. We were having this conversation about how, you know, for them coming into, let's say they wanted to do crankwork slope style. They were like, yeah, crankworks has been around for 18 years. And so the men have had 18 years to progress mm-hmm. and they come into like dark fest and, you know, all of these places and do these jumps that, you know, the, the men have taken years and years and years. And yes. so they talked about that, right? Like if we have the opportunity, like, we want to be there too, but I think it's um, just about allowing people the time and place to develop those skills. Yes, absolutely. Um, you hear it, Grant Quirk Whistler. You're a very busy man. You've just been signing autographs. You just said like <laughs> of course, everyone. Of course. Okay. I just can't even. I can't move to the town. Everyone wants to sign a fucking autograph. Um, what's it been like? You know. <sighs> Adapting to Red Bull not being at the World Cups, I imagine culturally within Red Bull that must have been a fucking kick in the uh, yeah. a gut punch, really. I think it was pretty unexpected. Um, also, I, I'm going to make you a spokesperson for Red Bull in every in every different direction. <laughs> Naturally. Naturally. It is the best company ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was super unexpected. Like Red Bull loves downhill, and I <laughs> I thought it was interesting, kind of hearing things from the outside, and I. You know, obviously I'm not in meetings with the CEO and whatever, but I was in most of 
the meetings where things were happening, not every time, but like over the years. And I think that uh, a lot of the times people had this idea that Red Bull had a lot more control than they did. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so now you have, there's two sets of rights. One is the broadcast rights and one is kind of the organization rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And the broadcasters can't really do too much, right? Like they can't, they can say, okay, we want to put a camera here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they can try to push a little bit for something or other, but like they don't have the capacity to say, cool, let's make the track 30 seconds faster. Well, yes. I mean, also I think there's there's an important distinction in that Red Bull had a relationship with the UCI to do the downhill races, but compared to the sort of Discovery Eurosport group, which is the UCI's biggest customer because of road cycling. Mm-hmm. So I imagine the dynamic is very different. Well, now, so, power, so now, um, yeah, Discovery owns both. Yes. So now they, they have the broadcast rights and they have the organizing rights. So yes. that's why you see like different tapings. That's why mm-hmm. the schedule is, they can change the schedule. Um, that's why they can change the format, like adding a semifinal and things like that. So they have a lot more control over it. Um, and I think that that was just like purely a UCI decision. I mean, like, obviously I don't know the inner workings of the deal or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but yeah. It's an important distinction though. I mean, I remember you specifically saying to me in Leergang 2017, saying, Henry, Red Bull for their home race, are ruining everything. And I can go on record okay. saying that. I don't go. mind. Get your pen and paper. I want this written down. <laughs> um, but Red Bull did used to come in for some flack. And I think that's an important distinction that maybe I haven't been honouring recently in terms of, because I've always found it quite funny, like people would complain about Red Bull, then Red Bull goes away, and then it's the new bogeyman to complain about. Yeah. Actually, and I mean, well, I, all of these systems can be very flawed. Like Red Bull well, for can sure, and do I, things imperfectly and so can discover. I think, yeah, so I think it's... Um, I think it's it's funny to look back at the history, right? Like they came in in 2012, and if you remember the what the kind of conversation was like back then, where it was like Red Bull, this they suck, like this is the worst, like bring back Freecaster, like blah 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 blah. Um, and now it's you know you have athletes at the last race saying we're gonna miss Red Bull, and um, and so I think that of course one of the things that I realized having gone to the world cup this year was everyone still has to do their job right like the athletes still have to go and race the teams still have to go and and provide support the fans are still going to come and you know you have this different organization you have this different kind of broadcast system but the sport is in a different plane it feels like right Mm -hmm. than like a lot of the conversation yeah Mm -hmm. i I think also for the discovery team it must have been really hard because people already had already had a bullet in the chamber of criticism before they'd even done anything Mm -hmm. and rick and cedric the two ricks on the commentary team left some pretty big shoes to fill and i'm not i'm not going to say whether it's good or bad or anything like that or but i think it's massive learning curve and to learn in such a public way. Yeah, the public be, learning. Oh, is so hard. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's, um, I agree. You can completely bag on them if you want, by the way. No, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. But I would also say that you, they, everyone, like every single person that is involved with the sport, you can't reduce the quality, 
Yes. Like you can't say, oh, well, we get to come in where Red Bull was in 2012. It's like, no, you have to come in at least where Red Bull is in every mm-hmm. single way. And where in like sport wise, organizer wise, safety wise, commentary mm-hmm. wise, broadcast wise, like camera wise, everything should be at least as good as what was happening before, because think- that's where the sport's at. Yeah, that's kind of accurate on a few different levels, too, with participation and with the people organizing the sport and with, yeah, just kind of everyone involved. It's that everyone has figured out, well, kind of what to expect from the organization and the organizers and also how to do it. So people don't have to be problem solving right now and relearning how to create a World Cup race or anything like that. It's like it's already been figured out. Totally. The hard work is sort of done. Now it's time to just sort of carry on with it. And like, so we've figured out where expectations should be and Mm -hmm. also where the achievement should be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think as an athlete, like you don't get to come into a race and be like, ah, this would have been the running run like three Uh years ago or whatever. It's like, no, like this is worth the level that the sport is at. And, you know, like the juniors, even like, you know, Jackson and Jordan, they come in and win races. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I think also it's a very hard comparison to live with at least initially for the Red Bull hardline to maybe be getting but maybe it's kind of I know that it didn't go this year but the hype around it people kind of have a reminder of mm-hmm. you know a snapshot back to, to what they had before yeah having Red Bull's name attached to something that's somewhat related but also not directly connected to World Cup races yeah kind of just throws everything into a little bit of chaos but I also think that maybe the way that the UCI so Discovery group have done that they haven't set themselves up particularly well because, so I had to put this, I think that any sympathy you would have had, from, at least for me as some guy in sort of in the media, kind of went by the way they did the calendar, which felt to me like it was a way to fuck Crankworks and to fuck Red Bull. Mm-hmm. And that's fair enough. If you want to go Discovery versus Red Bull, that's one thing. But there are a lot of really passionate mountain bike riders who they rely on to make the series what it is that have mm-hmm. now got to do loads of traveling, that have now got to spend loads of money, that have now got to do this. And it's like, you guys might be talking about million dollar contracts, but this person works for eight months a year as a mm-hmm. fucking carpenter and they work really hard. And now you're saying, oh, just so we can flex on Crankworks. They've got to do another transatlantic trip. And for the record, I think that's bullshit. I mean, yeah, this year is especially bad. Yeah. I think um, the thing about downhill mountain biking is that most of the people who are doing well, uh, downhill, well, First of all, downhill mountain biking is like a super, has so much variance. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why you can make a living kind of so far down. Like you can be a 25th place rider and make a living. You're Mm -hmm. not making a great living, but you look at Supercross and if you're making the main, you're paying for bikes and you're paying for everything Uh, because the person in Supercross that is getting 20th place, like never has a chance to win whereas in downhill the person who gets 20th place like can win the next race um and so i think one of the things that people forget like when you have a situation like that is that a lot of our top riders were not top riders for a long time mm. um andreas kolb was on the world cup circuit and Coulange. yep been walking for years 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 bernard, bernard yeah emery mm-hmm. Pirion, like all these people who are in the top 10, top 15, if you cut off the pathway and make it really hard to be a privateer, you think of Matt Walker, you think of Eddie Masters, like you think of Jack Moyer. Chris Wilson. 
Yeah, this Every is all so huge. Right? Anyone that writes yeah. a Bergamot. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, right? Yeah. And so, like, or basically here, just anyone. Yeah, yes. like here are all these people: Charlie Harrison, like every all of these people you would be cutting them out mm-hmm. and so like okay for right now you're able to you're like you know kind of collecting on these superstars but like where does where do the next superstars come in and i and i don't know what their plans are for development stuff and everything like that but i i do think just that conversation around like you need to allow privateers and downhill. I agree. Mm-hmm. I do agree. But just the other end of the spectrum, I would say that downhill is a really fascinating sport, but and it can be a frustrating sport because anyone you speak to in the top 100, like so basically anyone that turns up to World Cup is a top 20 rider on their day, in their head. I'm a top 20 rider. And we don't have the data points that you have in football. Football, they play 38 games just in leagues in soccer, sorry. And so you basically can vary, you have so many data points, you can work out but, 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 and I don't know what the solution is to that, but it's well, a really I, confusing thing because everyone, even though they've got the number plate says 78 in their mm-hmm. head, they're like, but I'm a top 20 rider. But I think it the, is a valid reason, a valid argument for giving people a chance when you can. For sure. I mean, I think that that, like, that's what I mean about the variance. And so like, if you, as soon as you go past 25 or so, you probably have like 10 people on the same second. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I can get, you know, the person who gets 20th can win the next week but the person who gets 60th can get 19th next week because Mm -hmm. that that gap or whatever variance wise is really similar um and so i think that that is one of the amazing things where you have like a angel suarez you know he was really really amazing um and he would have these like flashes of brilliance and you know he wasn't back in 60 or whatever but i think that jump into the top 20 allows a team to say, okay, this, this dude or, or woman has a, has potential. Let's allow them mm-hmm. to actually make this a professional career. Like you think of Louise mm-hmm. Ferguson this year mm-hmm. and the thing going from a privateer to a, a team is that it allows you to just focus on that. And so like, how is somebody going to compete you know, if I'm on a factory team and that's all I have to think about, how are they going to compete with me when I can get up, go on a road ride, then go to the gym and then like, you know, do my whatever training in the evening when they have to go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the amount of time that you can put in is really where that support makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've spoken about it before, but um, there are so many, I think Eddie Masters and Matt Walker are really great examples. Totally. Just because I think they have that, that Van Zyck thing where it's obviously outwardly self-deprecating, yada, yada, yada. But they made it fucking work. Man, I, I think that's amazing. They are like my inspiration. Like yes. my, because mm-hmm. my original deal on Yeti was uh, when I like first year pro or whatever, 11, 12. Did they cover your brother as well for when he wants to ride practice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was like, if you can get yourself to the World Cups, we'll be your mechanic um we'll allow you a pit space we'll give you all the gear whatever um and so i was like great you know i like worked at a bookstore and stuff like that and uh i would go and i would see eddie you know all the van zacks they would be in new zealand go over to europe they would buy a van had the black pearl one year and um (laughs) (laughs) and and they would travel around together and i remember i think it was wyndham they were sleeping in the parking lot with tents and Matt Walker goes out and gets a top 10 in that race. And so I always 
think about that. That's, you know, it's, it's downhill, you know, it's that, that, that it is kind of accessible, but I also think that they just are such an amazing example of chasing your dreams, if you will, right? Like making it work, Mm -hmm. understanding like what is the minimum viable thing that I can do, right? Mm -hmm. Let's pool together some money. Let's buy a van together. We can, we do a whole world cup season on, you know, $10,000 between the, Mm -hmm. you know, the three of us or whatever. And they were amazing riders. Like it's just so cool. And I think sometimes, I think now I think that gets lost. Obviously the level has gone up and things like that, but I think even going back to my story of like think seeing this team thinking that I needed X, Y, and Z um, kids, I think sometimes think they need the team to even get to the place in the first place. I think there's such a good example too, of getting the right things, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to have every single thing dialed ever to succeed. Yeah. You just have to, kind of be organized with the things that make sense that are important yeah and then the rest can be really loose and i mean a lot of actually the top mountain bikers now do that really well so it's cool to see and van zach's such a good example of that yeah but i think we saw a lot of that through the maybe 2018 2019 mm-hmm. i think there was a big shift to people going to those common style supremes because they didn't want to totally. get the wrong thing wrong yeah they yeah. didn't yeah, want yeah, to be yeah. a local distribution deal for a bike that was crap they were yeah. just like i know some people like you like, i'm just gonna do it yeah and I, maybe they saw amory and were like there was, a, there was a yeah. joke in the World Cup scene where people were calling it a magic carpet. And it was like <laughs> this like cheater bike. It was like, I oh, dude's mm-hmm. on a magic carpet. Like, and that, I think that fed into the mindsets of people, though. For sure. Which mm-hmm. then helped them potentially. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you can hear that, but there was a group of small mountain biking focused children who are desperate for Elliot's autograph banging at our door. <laughs> we've, got, we've got to let him get going. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. It's always great hanging out. For and, sure. Um, yeah, no, it's been so much fun. Yeah, thank yeah, you guys. So for, nice catching up with you. Yes, you, Henry. Henry, like, I will say, like, it's been so good to have you around. Like, you were a big, big help to me when I was in New Zealand and oh Queenstown. no, I, I would say vice like, versa. Yeah, that was really, yeah. really cool. <laughs> so, and, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I would say so. Just reference. It's weird that we're here now because I was just working in a shop. He'd always come in, and we kind of became friends, and. Like it's, it's strange. It's strange how the world works. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. <laughs> and I mean, it's such small world, like same for you, Alicia. I think like pink bike as well has been a big piece of my career and everything too. So it is, it's wild to, I don't know. It's like not come full circle, but. Do you know what the coolest picture from pink bike is? Uh, it's oh, here we go. a picture of you <laughs> tucking on a Yeti. Holding yeah. the crowns. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's the coolest picture on Pink Bike. And I remember seeing that before I, I knew you and I didn't, I didn't know anything about you. And I was like, that's the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. Bring yeah. back the crown tuck. Oh, that's too good. <laughs> well, yeah. No, it's really cool to come on. Glad we finally got to do this. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah.